One of the tensions you always have with talent density is psychological safety. In an environment where people are are managed out quickly, the psychological safety can go down. And so what we're trying to do here is actually balance that tension a a little bit. We looked at our kind of employee value proposition uh, last year and really dug into the psychology of happiness in order to create this environment that thrives. And what people actually need is a sense of belonging. And when people don't have psychological safety, it's really hard for them to have this sense of belonging. That was 10X Genomics Chief People Officer, Bexport. And in this conversation of redefining work, Bex and I sat down and talked about her career path, her pathway from PhD in psychology to Chief People Officer, and the role that plays in shaping a strategy built around the science of happiness. Can that work? What does it look like? We'll discuss in this episode, and we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. The Redefining Work podcast is sponsored by my company, Amplify. Amplify connects, develops, and empowers the next generation of transformative people leaders through HR executive search and the Amplify Academy learning and leadership development platform. Our executive search practice brings a modern approach to executive search by transparent pricing, unique access to emerging and established leaders, and onboarding advisory. Our Amplify Academy is changing how HR practitioners and leaders develop their careers through peer communities, the AI Learning Lab, and leadership development cohorts. Together, these platforms support our mission of building a better world of work by elevating the field of HR. You can learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Redefining Work, the new season uh, in the evolution of redefining HR. We are examining people and practices that are impacting and really reshaping this new world of work that we're building. Leaders like Bexport. I'm excited to sit down with you today, Bex. Uh, you know, we connected late last year to learn a little bit more about what you're building at 10X Genomics. Uh, Bex is the chief people officer at 10X Genomics. Deep background across global HR that we are going to get into. Um, but for starters, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I'd love to have you open with just a, a brief introduction for the audience. Hi. Yeah. Nice to to see everyone or meet everyone. I'm Bex. Uh, and so, as Lad said, I'm the Chief People Officer at 10X Genomics. I've been here almost two years. Uh, prior to this, I was VP of HR at Netflix. Prior to that, I um, ran regional HR for Standard Chartered across Europe and Americas. I spent almost 10 years with them at various locations, including a long time in Singapore. Prior to that, I um, was in India for a few years, uh, setting up the India operations for DDI, the Talent Management and Leadership Development Consultancy. Um, I've got a heavy background in psychology, a PhD degree, master's, um, and you can probably tell by the accent, I'm from England originally. Okay, so first important question, who calls you Bex and who calls you Rebecca? Oh, good question. So my parents call me Bex, although they spell it differently to me and they don't put a K in it. When I was at university, (laughs) my friends put a K in it because there was a beer called Bex uh, and it seemed appropriate to name me after a beer. Um, And But most people call me Bex. I feel like when I get called Rebecca, I'm in serious trouble. 
I, you know, I feel like everybody has that formal name that they're going with a shorthand. And when they get the formal name called, there's like the, the hair in the back of the neck goes up a little bit. Like, <laughs> oh, what, did, what did I do? What's going on? So, um, you know, as you mentioned, you, you have a really interesting background and we're going to dig into a lot of that experience that you've done. Um, but I want to kind of start, as you mentioned, you know, psychology has been a big part of your, um, you know, foundational approach to, to how you view the field, but also how you started your career, you know, a, a master's PhD, uh, clearly there is a deep passion, uh, inside of you for psychology. Um, where did that come from? Like when, when did you start finding yourself, you know, drawn to the, the, the mind and just, just all, all things psychology? Yeah, you know, when I was at school, um, uh, a friend came to me and said, you know, there's this subject called psychology. I think it'd be really interesting. And I must have been about 14. And we were like, what's that? Um, and we, we do things called A-levels in, in the UK, so f- from 16 to 18. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to do psychology A-level. And everyone was like, oh, that's not a proper subject. You'll never get into university with that. That's not a proper subject. And so I did it because I it was more of a, an enticement than a, a sort of a putting me off. And I just loved it. I just fell in love with the figuring things out, understanding the mind, understanding behavior, what drives behavior. Um, and I so then set off to do a, a degree. And I really wanted to be a criminal psychologist. And at the time in the UK, there was this program called Cracker, and it had this guy that would figure out all these crimes and the modus operandi of the, uh, of the uh, perpetrator. And, and so I did a, a, an internship at Scotland Yard and quickly realized that I was not really cut out to be a criminal psychologist. Um, and I looked at where could I have most influence and, you know, understanding um, human behavior in the, in the world of work. Many people have jobs. Um, many people have jobs they don't enjoy. It causes stress, burnout. And so really looking at where could you have maximal impact um, and was really drawn to, uh, you know, what we call in the UK occupational psychology. Here it's IO psychology. Um, and so did a master's and, and just loved the notion of work and business and how you can really create environments where people can really thrive. Um, and so then went on and did a PhD and I looked at, and PhDs in the UK are pure research. And so you sort of turn up and somebody gives you a laptop and an office and says, spend three years researching whatever you want, come up with a research question. And so I was like, oh, okay. Um, And uh, I looked at what leaders, the role that leaders could play in helping foster innovation. And at the time there was, you know, a lot of literature written around, you know, is innovation a trait? Is it um, a geniuses born or made? Um, And I just couldn't help but think that everybody has good ideas, but putting those ideas into practice doesn't always work because of the environment that people are in. And so spent three or four years researching that um, and did actually then go on and become a lecturer for a short time, um, looking and and researching at at what leaders and cultures of organizations can do to really get the best out of their people. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating f- educational foundation to what you do now. And I'm curious, like, would you, the the perspective, the academic perspective you had on the world of work, um, and then the actual perspective you had on the world of work once you, you know, kind of left and moved into, particularly when you moved into the, the field of HR, um, what surprised you? What were, were there Were there kind of expectations that maybe you had or assumptions that you had made? based on the academic experience that then when you took that in house, you're like, Oh, wait a minute, 
I was, you know, this is, this is very different than maybe I expected it to be. Yeah, good question. I think I often felt frustrated in academia that it wasn't pragmatic enough. Like I I'd certainly was not born to be a, an academic. I wanted to have more impact and, and see things put into practice. Um, and um, I think from a IO psychology or from a kind of a HR perspective, some of the foundations of what we were taught are just don't really apply. So things like competency models and frameworks and judging behavior and assessing behavior. Um, I was really deep into assessment. I took a very um, quantitative approach to my PhD. We developed a psychometric test. It was the reality of the utility of that actually, um, I think is, is more limited than what I would, what uh, 20 year ago me would have argued. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, especially now when you look at how technologies maybe, um, you know, feeling different ways of approaching that with, you know, AI tools, you know, kind of making, uh, assessments and evaluations. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think we're still, you know, early ish days there. I, I think, uh, there's still a hype bubble around, AI, but it'll be interesting to see how that continues to play out, particularly now, I think, as we're talking much more about, you know, skills based focused as opposed to role based focused. And how do we identify uh, those skills and maybe maybe find them in non-traditional or non-linear careers and backgrounds, which, you know, traditionally as a field, we were not very good at. Right. It's like, well, you're going to be a product manager and I need to see product manager in your resume. And I, I don't see that. So how could you be a product? You know, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but I want to go back to something you said in your introduction, uh, just about your national experience, obviously, uh, you know, starting, you know, being from the UK, you, you mentioned at, uh, at DDI, you had your first international assignment standing up an office in India. And I want to kind of go back to that time because I think it's a, it's such a unique experience to be able to go into, uh, you know, a, a new market, a new region, a new country, and build something from the ground up. So when you when you look back at that experience, what are some of the ways that that, that kind of, you know, shaped your thinking about the field that maybe, you know, maybe maybe, you know, recalibrated how you think or, or things that maybe you still apply to this day? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge learning curve. I mean, it was such a great experience to go and to live in a country that is so vastly different to the one that I grew up in. Um, and I think... Um, going and setting up the business was just interesting. It was the, um, it really made me realize I, I you know, I, I love the commercial side of organizations. I definitely want to be running a business. And so as I look at kind of, as I've gone into HR roles, you know, I don't want to just be the HR person. I want to be a leader of the business that just happens to specialize in people. Um, and so I think there was that, I think, um, understanding different cultures. Um, and it really goes back to that notion of kind of disrupting things and asking why. And so, um, it taught me to just not make assumptions. So things that I grew up with thinking are very normal and are the right way to do things. So such as marrying your spouse, because you love them. Somebody said to me, it's just such a, 
ridiculous notion that you would marry somebody because you love them. You marry somebody because it's the merging of two families and that your, your family, your parents should be picking your spouse, which to me was just such an alien concept. But to the person I was talking to that, you know, a love marriage was also such an alien concept and, and a similarly ridiculous idea. And I could give you, you know, 20 examples of sort of similar things where our worldview was just very different. And so it taught me to really question why and go back to that first principles. And even though things have always been done this way and this is convention in your organization or your business or your family, it doesn't always have to be. Um, And I'm so grateful for that opportunity and still now try and operate from first principles. Um, and, And I think I apply that to my work where it's like, well, just because we've always done that that way in HR, it doesn't mean to say that we always have to, um, I don't know, you know, nine box grid is my typical example that I, I pick holes in. Like, you know, who wants to work for a company that only has 5% of people who are high potential and high performing? I mean, no, why can't everybody be, why do you have to have a normal distribution curve? Why can't you operate at the right hand side of that normal distribution curve? Um, and, you know, why do you have to do things? And we've seen, you know, our, our area disrupt things. Why do you need performance reviews? Why do you need um, some of the, the systems and processes that were more traditional? Um, so I think that questioning as was really generated from there by basically having the mirror held up to myself and say, you know, my own assumptions about the world are, are incorrect. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to hear you describe it that way, because I think, you know, you're right. I think a lot of people who are used to doing one thing a certain way or they grew up in a certain region and all of the practices and customs in that region are what they perceive to be, you know, normal, normalized. So then anything different is foreign. And I think when you're in that immersive uh, experience that is uh, that challenges all of those assumptions, it kind of breaks all those norms and allows you to see things from others perspectives, then you realize just the complexity of everything in that, you know, there isn't really a one set of, you know, Western norms or Eastern norms. Uh, you know, it's all based on perspective and there isn't any kind of set right or, or wrong way to think about things. And I think to your point in HR, you know, we, we typically have a pretty, uh, you know, traditional and standardized approach towards how we think about things, like you said, like performance or succession planning or, or recruiting. And I think, you know, we're, we're in the last couple of years we've gone through have really caused us to rethink some of those norms and challenge some of what was once conventional wisdom to now say, you know what, I don't really know that, you know, because we've always done things that way, it makes sense for us to just do things that way. There could be a better way. And like, when you think about, I mean, particularly you're in a role now where you're, you're owning and running and setting the whole talent strategy for the business. Um, does anything stand out to you in terms of like, you know, traditionally people usually do X in this way, but X doesn't work at 10 X genomics. We're going to do it a different way. Does any, does any kind of example stand out to you or you, you kind of bucked against that conventional wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think this this concept of talent density, right? So I think having an organization that has extremely high talent density rather than that normal distribution. So I talk about, you know, we only want the right-hand side of the, the performance curve. And so when we talk about underperformers, we're talking about average performers. Um, and if you're average, average isn't good enough. And that's that's logically very easy to for people to accept. Practically, it's very difficult to, to implement for a couple 
couple of reasons. One, by definition, somebody that's average does some things really well and some things not so well, right? So, you know, a classic underperformer is really easy to give feedback to, to exit from the organization. It's very clear it's not working out. When you've got someone who's average, it feels um, maybe harsh, unfair, mean. And so, having systems and processes in place that help managers make that really difficult decision. It's much harder to decide to exit um, an average performer than an underperformer. Um, I also think if you are only operating at the top of that that talent curve, one of the conversations I often have with our board is around the financial sustainability of paying everybody at the top of the market, right? And so if you want the best talent, then you know one of the reasons I think a lot of organizations have a normal distribution curve is that you pay your best people top and you pay everybody who's average, you pay them average, and then you pay the low performers either, you know, very limited, right? And so there's a financial reason for that. And um and so bucking against kind of market compensation practices has obviously a huge financial implication for the for the performance of the organization. Um, but we continue to, to, to do that and to drive towards hiring the best and paying them well. HR leaders today are under immense pressure to deliver results for the business, navigate new social and business climates, and build adaptable people programs built for these dynamic times. We're often asked to do more with less. The new world of work requires new ways to learn and develop our capabilities as HR and people practitioners. The Amplify Academy was built from the ground up to help people leaders efficiently and effectively connect with diverse learning needs for today and tomorrow. The Amplify Academy provides you with highly curated resources, exclusive content, courses, and a community designed to help people leaders effectively support your organization and each other. There are two components to the Amplify Academy, the Amplify Academy Learning Lab and Community and the Amplify Academy Leadership Development Cohorts. The Learning Lab and Community includes an AI learning platform that includes a range of courses, resources, templates, presentations, reports, and more to support the learning needs of today's HR and people practitioners. The Learning Lab subscriptions also include access to the Amplify Academy Slack community, a purpose-designed community to help you build your network equity and connect, collaborate, and grow your network with peers around the world. The Amplify Academy cohorts are four-week immersive peer learning programs designed to help you build the leadership skills and network you need to lead successful teams in the new world of work. Cohort students learn from world-class guest instructors with past instructors including Katie Burke, Katarina Berg, Lynn Oldham, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, Nellie Peshkoff, and so many more. Want to supercharge your people team? Be sure to check out the Academy for Teams product. It's designed to give your people teams access to all 450 plus resources in the Learning Lab and build their network equity in the Slack community, as well as their leadership ability in the Amplify Academy cohorts. You can learn more about all of this at amplifytalent.com slash academy. Now, back to the show. When you think about how you manage performance in that environment where, again, you're trying to you know, shift uh, the curve to the right, and obviously that, you know, it's a, it's a caliber of employee who is often in demand and you have to go above market to, to attract and retain them. Um, 
how do you, do you like, I'd love to get a look inside like your performance, how you think about performance. And I don't even know if it's a performance management process. I mean, maybe you don't even have that, but like, how do you, what enables you to be able to do that successfully in terms of like how the business and the managers assess performance within the organization? Yeah. And look, and, and this is a journey for us. And I think we'll continuously be on this journey. Um, but we look at performance management continuously. So there isn't a one-time performance management. We do have a um, like a, a talent review where um, we're not relying on single point individuals. If you look at kind of the noise, again, back to that psychology background, the noise around individual decision-making is huge. Like you can watch one movie and love it. And I can watch exactly the same movie and absolutely despise it. Right. So, um, we try and stay away from single point decision-making, but we have calibration sessions where we look and we talk about talent density and we talk about people's performance, um, in the sense of what the impact that they're having, but we expect, and we train our managers to give feedback. We train our employees to ask for feedback we um, look at this continuous performance management. So if there's a problem, you deal with it real time and you deal with it quickly. Um, we look, you know, I think you also have to look at the sort of the other systems that reinforce that. So how is headcount managed, for instance, because I will hang on to an average person if I think I'm not going to get the headcount to replace that person and upgrade. Um, what are our severance packages? If I feel like I'm exiting an, ex uh, an average person and I can um, give them you know, an enhanced severance package, it feels less cruel that I'm giving them a softer landing pad. Um, and really driving leadership accountability. And then we look at who's the talent that we bring into the organization. So all of our employees that are all of our candidates, once they've passed that sort of initial screening, have to do a presentation to a group of people. And we find that the presentation is just a really good way to screen people. We ask, we, it makes, it means that the interviews are real interviews and you're not spending half an hour going through someone's CV and five different people are having the same conversation, but it also allows us to give, um, uh, you know, case studies, like how would you work through this? Um, and depending on the role, if it's a, I don't know, comms role, there's a written exercise and things like that. Um, and then another thing that we've done when we look at talent density is we've really been focused on essential rather than exhaustive. So a back to that, um, you know, conventional wisdom is you have your competency framework and it has like, I don't know, eight to 10 competencies and you look and you check against each one. And so we felt that that was just exhaustive. And we said, you know, what are the three things that really drive success here at 10X? And we've got intellectual horsepower where we sell to academics. We've got, you know, I don't know, of our organization, I think, you know, almost 50% of our employees have PhDs. Um, we really are looking for high intellectual horsepower. And, and, and that's not necessarily traditional intellect. It's really about people's ability to understand context, solve problems, create a plan and come up with a course of action. Um, collaboration, we are a deeply collaborative organization. The, the nature of the work that we do means that you have scientists working with software engineers, working with hardware engineers, working with operations to, to bring together not only the science of creating tools that help understand biology, but also building them and getting them out the door and commercializing them. So this nature of collaboration is, is something, you know, 
Netflix call it this sort of no brilliant jerk, right? But it's just like we don't we don't tolerate kind of bad behavior. And so we screen for those people who are naturally prone to collaborating. And then drive and passion, you know, where it's a pretty intense environment. We're um, 10 years old. We IPO'd in 2019. It's hyper growth. And so having those people that have that drive and passion. And we find that by f- really focusing our recruitment process on those core capabilities that we know make a difference here, that we screen out and that we're already kind of skewing to the right of the um, of the, the sort of talent profile or the performance um, profile. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too. I think, you know, you mentioned in reference talent density a few times, obviously coming from Netflix, uh, which is an organization kind of known for their uh, approach towards talent and, uh, and, you know, people that are at a certain caliber or are, you know, managed out and very open and transparent about that. Like, I'm, I'm wondering, how, were, were there any um, practices within Netflix that you either kind of work to, to emulate specifically at 10x, or maybe maybe you found that uh, you know externally a practice is perceived to be a certain way, but you know you felt it didn't really work for um, again the unique uh, environment and culture uh, and workforce that you were building with at 10x. Yeah, look, I think one of the tensions you always have with talent density is psychological safety in yeah. an environment where people are, are managed out quickly, the psychological safety can go down. And so what we're trying to do here is actually balance that tension a, a little bit. We looked at our kind of employee value proposition uh, last year and really dug into the psychology of happiness in order to create this environment that's, that thrives. And what people actually need is a sense of belonging. And when people don't have a psychological safety, it's really hard for them to have this sense of belonging. And you know, a sense of belonging is, is hardwired in this. It's, you know, you know, some people would do argue that it's more important than um, food and water as a kind of biological system, and there's some sort of neuroscience that's that's looking at that right now. Um, I just think it's something that people need. And so what we are also trying to do is to also make sure that there is a deep perception of fairness in how we do that. And so, you know, if I exit an average performer, that they've been given the chance to um, to improve, that they've been given lots of feedback. And so I think our timeline is probably slightly longer. I mean, it doesn't go on and on and on as, as kind of like the sort of, you know, I've worked in more traditional organizations where it's kind of years of people being on a pip. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's certainly helping people understand that, that fairness um, and the feeling that the process is fair. Um, and so deeply ingrained in our culture is this notion of treating people with dignity and respect. And it comes from that high collaboration. It's also a core part of our DNI strategy. And so um, helping people, hiring people who are curious about other people, who have deep empathy, who have compassion, and approach people in, hey, I want to collaborate with you, is really just runs through the core of everything that we have. So um, that perception of fairness, I think, in all of this is is really important. Yeah. And I want to come back to something you said, Bex, around um, happiness as an, an element of, um, you know, creating that environment of psychological safety and belonging. And I'd love to, you know, if there's a connection there, kind of connect that back to your psychology background, because in your work, I'm sure you you spend a lot of time understanding from an IO perspective, like what are the different uh, 
elements of an environment that will allow someone to feel like they belong or to feel like they are um, supported in the workplace. And I'd love to just get your perspective on that. Like, how, how does that, how does your psychology background shape how you think about creating an environment and, and, and a culture and, and, and the specific practices that, um, that really foster that within 10X? Yeah. And so look, when we, we sort of sat out last year and looked at, you know, what is our employee value proposition? How are we articulating that? We dug into the psychology of happiness and, and, you know, we looked at various different approaches, what's important, what's not, what do employees value, what data have we got? Um, and if you look at the, you know, if you look at happiness, happiness is the precursor to every measure of success that you can basically come up with, right? You know, happy doctors give more accurate, quicker diagnosis. Happy salespeople outsell pessimistic salespeople. Um, you know, happy employees take fewer sick days. Happy employees report higher job satisfaction. All of this kind of stuff. And so, I then, you know, um, along with the team, dug right into well, what's the psychology of happiness at work? What do people actually need? And, you know, this sense of belonging. And so what creates this sense of belonging? Well, it's actually like people feeling that they're being understood. Well, okay, what relates to that? And so we kind of went on this journey of like, okay, how do you actually build this? Um, and it was really about, um, you know, and then opportunities for growth. People are happier when they've got, um, you know, a sense of challenge. So making sure people are challenged and they've got challenging work. And we've got a ton of really challenging work. Um you know, people, that's why people like puzzles that are solvable, but difficult because you're learning and, and, and you're, you, you know, who you work with, um, working with amazing colleagues, having this environment where you like the people that you work with. And on our engagement surveys, you know, 95% of our employees say that they work with other, other amazing colleagues, which is huge, especially compared to sort of the benchmarks. And so, really digging into that and thinking, okay, how do we train managers around that? How do we start talking about that again? How do we hire against it? And then how do we exit? If somebody's unable to collaborate, they don't belong here. And so we should follow through on that. How do we pay against that? So we're going through our, you know, our, our sort of focal process at the minute. And, you know, we had a conversation yesterday, if somebody's technically really delivering, but they're difficult to work with, that's an underperforming here. And so they sh we shouldn't be paying them bonuses. We should be giving them feedback. So I think we dug into not only what's the psychology of it, but then what are the systems that can support all of that? Um, uh, you know, and other things that we learned about the psychology of happiness, um, you know, growth was a really big thing. Rewards was a really big thing, but not, um, you know, just because you pay people more, it's not, it, it, they're not happy. I mean, that's the sort of um, what everybody thinks. If you ask 10 people, what will make them more happy? Nine of them will say, oh, more money. Um, but we know from lottery winners that there is a sort of a, a temporary sugar rush of happiness. And then you go to slightly above where your baseline was, but it's not a sort of a sustained elevated level of happiness. But when your rewards are not in line with what you're thinking they should be, then it does have a negative impact on your happiness. And so making sure, you know, as we go into an era of pay transparency, you should know what your market is. And so we've worked really hard to say, look, there is it. We have got target compensation and this is what we're aiming to pay you. And this is what you can expect if you give good performance. And this is when you, when it wouldn't be. Um, and so aligning rewards to expectations is also something that, um, that we discovered through this process of exploring the psychology of happiness. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I feel like we can we can have a part two uh, podcast just <laughs> on that topic alone because I think it's such an interesting topic and it's something that um, you know I think in in the field we when often we talk about happiness like there's you know you'll see titles like a chief happiness officer and and you're kind of like okay well how how are they going to be able to create happiness in an employee that's an individual but I think hearing you talk more about creating an environment that um, that creates belonging which leads so it's almost you know it's not you're not keying on happiness you're keying on the environmental uh, you know uh, parameters that uh, that can lead to happiness right and and that that is something that you can measure manage uh, adjust um, so yeah it's interesting to hear you take that so that I'll, I'll pin that that may be something we come back to but uh, I really enjoyed learning more about your your career and your background and at redefining work we close every episode with the lightning round and we're mixing that up a little bit for this new season uh, of redefining work and so I, I'm a music guy we will still start with music but your music question is going to be what was your first concert Oh, uh, my first concert was the Rolling Stones at age 15. That's strong. That is a strong <laughs> intro to live music. Uh, wow. Okay. Very cool. Um, second question is, you know, perhaps a, a thread off the happiness uh, closer. What is bringing you joy lately? Mm, well, that's a really great question. Um, so I went back to the UK over the holidays um, and for the first time in five years with my family and I, I am from a, a, the north of the UK and um, I'm still really tight with like my high school friends. And so what brought me joy lately is just hanging out with them and behaving like a teenager and laughing at silly things. And, um, yeah, just there's certain people in your life that certainly kind of keep you grounded and make you laugh a little louder and spending time with them certainly brings me joy. Yeah. You know, it's so fun. I think when you, when you go back and you have those, uh, those relationships, it's almost like a time machine, right? You you, kind of go back, you're right back in that place of like, yes, it's X years, you know, after the fact, but you know, you kind of pick up right where you left off. So, uh, yeah, Yeah, uh, I, I can see how that's joyful. Um, and uh, best last question for you, uh, you know, a lot of our audience is, uh, or are, I should say, uh, HR leaders, HR practitioners, or people just kind of interested in this new world of work. And um, obviously we've been through a lot as an industry, continue to go through a lot as an industry over the last, uh, you know, couple of years. What advice do you have? You have a captive audience now of, you know, your peers or people who aim to be uh, in a role like yours at some point. Uh, what advice do you have for them today? I think, you know, really adopting the first principles approach as to what you do. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate because the culture here is very first principle driven, but what it has taught me and what has, has, has forced me to do is to constantly question why, like, why are we doing that? Why would we do this this way? does this just because we've always done it this way. Um, and so, you know, there are a couple of principles that I ask the team here to operate in. And it starts with, What's the problem that we're solving for? So be really clear about what the problem is solving for. Then what data do we have to say that, you know, this is a problem? How do we really fully understand this problem? Because I think as well, sometimes in HR, we can be, um, we can start managing to anecdotes because one person somewhere or one group of people said, this is an issue or we should do this. And so really digging deep is, do we really fully understand this and this is a problem? And then how do we solve it? And how do we solve it with excellence? But that's really 
um, you know, don't approach things with a HR playbook, approach things with a, I'm going to solve problems. And, and I've just found that for my team, that helps us be just such a great partner to the business. Yeah. I love it. Great. Uh, great way to end this episode. And, uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in to redefining work and, uh, Bex, thanks so much for making time to share your career and your work with all of us. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. It was great to have a conversation with you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out amplifytalent.com slash podcast. And if you dig this podcast, I strongly encourage you to share it with your CEO, leadership team, and friends to help others discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever your preferred podcast delivery vehicle is. We'll see you next episode.